Hi, it's Shana here. Before this episode starts, I'm popping in with a quick reminder about our upcoming CEU on Thursday, May 16th on a person-centered approach to behavior management. School taught us a lot about ABA. However, the thing with ABA is that it's a science and it's constantly evolving. So a lot of what we learned back then doesn't always apply now. Today, we want to use a person-centered approach to behavior management, um, but what does that look like and how can our learners still make progress in this kind of approach? So join us live on Thursday, May 16th at 12 p.m. Eastern Time as Shira discusses how to use a person-centered approach to behavior management with your learners. This CEU is presented by our very own Shira Karpel. You can earn one learning CEU for ACE, QABA, or IBAO. Join us live at this event or to watch the recording asynchronously, go to howtoaba.com forward slash CEU. See you then. Hi, I'm Shira Karpow. And I'm Shana Gaunt, and we're board certified behavior analysts. At How To ABA, we provide practical resources, community, and support to ABA professionals. In each episode of our podcast, we will be having real conversations with real people sharing real stories about ABA. We'll share relevant strategies and actionable tips that will make us all better ABA practitioners. It's the ABA content you need that you're not going to learn in a textbook. Hi, everyone. On today's podcast, we are answering a question from our audience that came to us through the website. The question is about a three-year-old non-speaking autistic child. He has a tendency to open and close doors, especially sliding doors, and often will accidentally hurt kids. They've tried to like push chairs and tables together and block the doors or distract him, giving him toys. Um, But after a short time, he's really back on this type of activity of closing doors. And it's the same in all environments. So without having like a whole lot of information and being able to do like a full functional analysis on this type of behavior, I understand that it's dangerous and that, you know, it's worth targeting because kids are getting hurt, especially if the child themselves are getting hurt or other kids are getting hurt with the doors. But it seems from the question that because it's happening in all environments, she didn't mention any real triggers or antecedents, that it might be some sort of automatically reinforced behavior. So the definition of automatic or sensory behavior as one of the functions is that it doesn't really fall into any one of the other function categories. So there's no clear antecedent. It's not access or escape or attention. And so sensory or automatic kind of becomes the catch-all or the default Um, without having a better explanation. It's kind of the assumption that these behaviors are automatically reinforcing. And what it means by automatically reinforcing are They just engage in them because they feel good. We all have our versions of automatically reinforcing behaviors, whether it's nail biting or chocolate Chocolate. Chocolate. (laughs) or watching TV or anything that just, you know, we just engage in it because it feels good. So that's the type of category that we're talking about. So if we are assuming that it's automatically reinforced behavior, then we need to look at it and say, well, what about the behavior does this person like? So it's not good enough to say, okay, it's automatic reinforcement. Now we know the function. What I actually want to know is what's the function of the automatic reinforcement? And people look at me sometimes like I have three heads when I say, what's the function of the automatic reinforcement? They say, well, it's automatic reinforcement. 
Yeah, but but why? Why do they like it so much? Um, so really looking at that and saying, okay, well, what is this child getting out of opening and closing doors? Is it the visual, for instance? Do they really like to see that visual opening and closing? Is it the sound? Maybe there's some kind of squeak to it as they open and close the doors. Um, maybe it's the reflection of the way the light hits the table or the door, or whatever it is. Um, and oftentimes, you're really just making an assumption. You're guessing at this because you aren't inside that child's head. Um, But oftentimes I have had team members at a team meeting sit down and we actually engage in the behavior ourselves. And sure, it may seem silly to do and it may look silly, but you actually gain a lot of... um, gain a lot of knowledge doing this. So what I would suggest, and it may sound crazy, um, but actually engage in the behavior yourself. But when you're engaging in the behavior yourself, um, and not while he's with you, but just, you know, as a, you know, task, engage in the behavior yourself. And while you're doing that, really think about what parts of the behavior might be really cool. So like I said, if it's opening and closing doors, is it the squeak of the door? Is it the way the sunlight reflects off of the glass? Is it, you you know, the, the way that the two pieces come together, really looking at that and analyzing that um, and then going, OK, so now that I think I may know or they've got five possible reasons, let's take a look at replacement behavior and what else could we be doing instead? So if I know that maybe he likes the way two pieces come together, maybe I can look at him taking shapes and gluing shapes on a piece of paper together or making some kind of collage um, that's a little bit more functional than putting you know, the door opening and closing. Um, if I know it's the way the sunlight bounces off the window somehow while he's opening and closing the door, maybe I think about, well, what else makes that reflection? Maybe there's some light toys that I can get um, or other shiny objects that he may like instead. So really really taking a look at what that function is and and the reason behind and giving some other options. And sometimes you're not able to replace it with something else, but you could do something like time and place. So with things that are automatically reinforcing, it could be that, you know, this door is okay. You can open and close this door, but this door you can't, or maybe teaching the learner that it's okay to open and close this door at this time, or it's okay to engage in this behavior in your bedroom, you know, when you're alone, but not when there's other people around or not in the morning or, you know, whatever works, because often trying to extinguish um, sensory behaviors does just means that another one is going to pop up. And it's not always in our kids' best interest to eliminate them completely, but sometimes we could shape them so that they have guidance on how to do them safely. Um, So thinking about time and place and, you know, maybe they get their own, once you figured out what it is about that door, is it, you know, the the heavy movement where like a sliding door she mentioned would involve a lot of like pushing. Um, So getting something that could simulate that and they're able to do that, you know, in this location um, when it's safe with these kind of parameters around it. Sure, you're a big fan of the red card, green card. Um, and, you know, when Shira talks about time and place, I always think red card, green card. Um, and what does that look like, right? So it doesn't have to be a card. It doesn't have to be red. It doesn't have to be green. But some kind of physical something in the environment that indicates that it's okay to do this right now or that it's not okay to do this. And oftentimes, I've used a bracelet. So, you know, you're allowed to engage in this behavior when you're wearing the bracelet. When the bracelet's off, um, you know, it's time to not engage in the behavior. It's not safe to engage in the behavior at this time. Um, Or it might be a specific color of t-shirt or it's a card on the table that says, okay, you're allowed to do this now. You're not allowed to do this now. Um, Lights on and off, just some kind of very um, salient cue in the environment 
to show the student that you're allowed to do this now or you're not allowed to do this now. Um, and another procedure that's often used for these types of behaviors might be something like a DRO or a DRA or a DRI or something, but just making sure that reinforcing the absence of the behavior might be okay if you're also reinforcing that replacement. So you're, or you're teaching a replacement or there's something that they can do alternatively because just reinforcing the absence of behavior, um, which would be a DRO, wouldn't always be enough because something else will pop up, but you could do like a DRA, which is reinforcement of alternative behavior or DRI, which is the incompatible behavior. Um, and so those are good options with, with, you know, automatically reinforcing behavior is thinking about what you want them to do instead. And how can you put in a reinforcement system to build up that replacement or that other skill um, while at the same time, you know, not getting reinforcement for the other one. I used to be a huge fan of DROs, which is differential reinforcement of other behaviors. So like Shira said, if the student's not engaging in, you know, the certain behavior for a particular period of time, you know, then they can have X, Y, or Z, or they get a token and five tokens equals something, or maybe five tokens means they get to engage in the behavior then. And I used to be a huge fan of this and I used to do it all the time, um, but I have stopped. Um, and the reason I stopped is for a few things, because number one, if I'm not putting in place replacement behavior, so if I'm doing a DRO, but I have nothing to replace it with, then, you know, I'm not doing that child any justice whatsoever because something else is going to pop up in its place. Um, but number two, recognizing that the student, the child, the individual is doing this for a reason. So, you know, they're opening and closing doors because they really like opening and closing doors. Like who am I to stop them from doing that? Right. Um, yes, it's dangerous. That's why we need to stop them. Um, and maybe they're getting inside their own head and it's really hard to break them from that. But there's a reason they're doing it. And I know that if someone took away something that I like, um, you know, like eating too much chocolate, I'd be upset too. Right. But, um, you know, so I typically don't put in place a DRO anymore or as often, unless I've got some type of replacement behavior or unless I've got, I really know the function, I'm going to give them something functional to do instead, like, you know, something else shiny to play with or the pushing or something else that they're seeking from doing that behavior. Yeah, that's a good point. And to be clear, we're not talking about reducing um, sensory behaviors just for the fact that they're automatically reinforcing. Most of the time, they're fine. Like, you know, we, like Shana said, like they're serving a, a purpose and if it's not bothering anybody, then let them, you know, enjoy. Let me have my chocolate. Let me bite my nails. Um, but we're referring to wanting to reduce it when they're either becoming harmful or dangerous um, or getting in the way of something else that could be really productive for them. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is consult other professionals. A lot of times with sensory or automatically reinforcing, you can ask an OT for some advice and they could give you, you know, whether it's a, a special chair for them to sit on or certain body movements or body weight exercises that would give them that feedback. Um, sometimes that's good to get that advice and that perspective on the sensory piece. Um, so yeah, we're not an expert in that. Don't claim to be. Um, I work really well with occupational therapists. And it's interesting because, you know, if you would have asked me 20 years ago, I would have said, no, I'm not working with anybody outside of the ABA realm. And come on, give me a break, right? Like everybody has their specialties and um, occupational therapists are really amazing at looking at that sensory piece and really understanding it and saying, okay, you know, do X, Y, and Z um, because they're seeking this and they need this piece of it. Um, and you can really get some great tips from them. So um, definitely consult other professionals if you're stuck. Yeah. And especially finding an OT who can 
understand like the behavioral perspectives that you can work together, right? So that the sensory piece doesn't become reinforcing, but it could be a proactive procedure because often it will be, oh, you know, they're acting out because they want deep pressure. So give them deep pressure every time they act out. And that very quickly becomes, you know, a chain of behaviors where the deep pressure becomes a reinforcement for, you know, the, the challenging behavior, the aggression. So definitely working with someone who understands that, that behavioral perspective so that you can work together on putting those proactive strategies in place to speak to the sensory piece. Sometimes it's prevention and sometimes it's, you know, countering it with something else. Sometimes it's a replacement skill. It's, it's such a, a big area, this whole area of automatic reinforcement. Um, and we have to be very careful because it's not something that we need to eliminate as a challenging behavior in and of itself, but taking into consideration what it's serving the client, um, how it could be dangerous and how we can work with other professionals to really um, support our students the best. I want to go off on a tangent for a minute, um, you know, not talking about opening and closing doors anymore, but let's talk about scripting and echolalia. Um, people will often say, well, you know, I've got a child who's scripting, it's automatic reinforcement. What can I do about it? There's got to be some kind of behavioral procedure, uh, you know, that I can use to stop this. And the answer is yes, there absolutely is a behavioral procedure, except, you know, maybe there's a simpler solution. So sometimes, you know, if you've got a child engaging in automatic reinforcement, whether it be open opening and closing doors, or whether it be scripting or something else, if you can take a look at what that you know, what that purpose is, um, you maybe come up with a simple solution. And what do I mean by that? Um, take scripting, for instance. So with scripting, you know, you've got a child who might be, you know, echoing um, TV shows, and they may be scripting a whole Elmo episode of something or other. And it's really hard to break that. And the reason you don't want them scripting is because you're trying to teach them something and you can't teach them if they're scripting in their head, they're, they're not taking it in. Um, so maybe not be a safety issue, but it's a learning issue and, and they're not able to do it. Um, you know, there are behavioral procedures, something called response interruption and redirection, which is where you can go in and you can, you know, ask questions and get them answering your questions um, and using functional language. And then you're reinforcing that functional language, um, which is really great um, and it's very effective, but it can be really difficult to do. Um, other things that I've done instead are, um, again, looking at, well, what's the function besides automatic reinforcement? What are they getting from it? And if I really analyze it, a lot of the learners I work with who script are scripting because they're filling dead air. Have you ever had those individuals where they just can't stand silence? Um, you know, like, you know, certain family members included, um, but, you know, you just can't, you know, you can't stand silence. So you just talk to fill the air. Um, sometimes, you know, I've got individuals who are doing that. And the reason um, for that is because they, it's, it's silent. It's too much for them and they just want to hear that script. Um, so what I've done is simply play music in the background. Now, the music is typically wordless music, so maybe classical, maybe not, but just no words in it because we don't want them scripting that music in the background. Um, but sometimes just you know, simple, instead of putting a complex behavioral intervention in, you know, you play music in the background of your therapy sessions and, you know, they're not scripting because there's noise in the background. Um, so little simple interventions like that can um, solve lots of things. So, you know, getting creative and looking at alternatives um, besides a really complex intervention can help as well. Yeah, really looking at the big picture and, you know, what's what's the best in this situation and is it, you know, prevention or is it working with the with the learner or with other professionals and 
maybe not even, maybe it's fine to, you know, just let them engage in this type of behavior as long as they're safe. Thanks for joining today's conversation. Wherever you get your podcast, please go and subscribe, rate and review so others can find out about us too. For more from How to ABA, including free resources and ABA materials, visit our blog at howtoaba.com and make sure that you're following us on social media for more practical tips and updates.